Hi, my name is Millie Vieira, and this is Global Tides, a podcast where I interview Pepperdine students and faculty that have produced excellent research. During the past few years under the Trump administration and transition to the Biden administration, there has been a lot of heated discourse surrounding the merits of multilateralism. You don't need to be an international politics buff to understand how this has affected the international scene. Many may remember a particularly notorious treaty withdrawal, Brexit, which was formalized in January of 2020, or the Trump administration's near withdrawal from the World Health Organization during the peak of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, scholars regularly discuss the merits of joining international organizations, but there's a dearth of literature on how and why states withdraw from these international organizations. So what motivates a state to want to disengage from multilateralism? And are there any lessons to be learned for the future formation of international organizations? Today we are joined by Dr. Felicity Vabulous, Associate Professor of International Studies in Pepperdine's International Studies and Languages Division. Dr. Vabulous earned her PhD and MPP in Public Policy from the University of Chicago. She earned her Bachelor's in Business Administration from the University of Illinois. Her research focuses on the political economy of international organizations and foreign lobbying. Dr. Vabulous, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Now, I've already read off your impressive bio, but I'd love it if you could fill in some of the gaps to give us a fuller understanding about the motivations for your work. So first, what prompted your career in academia and international relations? I will try to do this without being at one of those Felicity Vabulous, this is your kind of life recording. But I think I want to emphasize three important turning points in my career trajectory. So the first is that I grew up in Australia. My parents are Australian citizens. And while I was born in the U.S., I moved to Australia when I was four. And I lived there till I was 14 and then moved back to the United States. So I think I've always kind of had this outsider looking in or international kind of perspective on the world. Um, Even though Australia in many ways doesn't feel very different from the U.S., um, assimilating to a new country really forced me from an early age to wonder about how the world works and how different countries operate and how different governments handle things. And the second key turning point in determining my career is that I've always loved to travel. I studied abroad my junior year in college in the United Kingdom. And I also did a study abroad the sophomore, the summer between my sophomore and junior year in Japan. And both of those really created in me a desire to understand the rest of the world. These experiences planted in me what many of you have, a sense of wanderlust and a sense of exploration. And the third relevant piece of my career trajectory was my job right after college. I actually studied business administration for my undergrad, and my first job was at a consulting company called Accenture. I had really, really terrific clients. I loved my work, even though there was a very steep learning curve, kind of drinking from the fire hose, if you will. But the subject matter, supply chain processes for retailers, didn't really motivate me to get up in the morning. The things I loved about the job were, you know, unpacking really tricky questions that didn't have clear-cut answers. And I had to constantly sort of put on my critical thinking hat, and I loved diving into the data. (laughs) 
I had to figure out sort of what was going on and then present that to the client. And what it made me realize was that I love analysis and I love presenting what I discovered. Nerd alert, (laughs) turns out that that's what an academic does, research and teaching. And so for me, what I had to figure out was, okay, what topic do I want to research and teach if that's going to be my career? So what I did was I kind of combined these things, right? My passion for international things and politics, you know, as I was traveling to the client site, I loved, you know, listening to NPR if I was in the car or reading The Economist on the plane. But the folks around me on a day-to-day basis didn't necessarily do that. So what I was able to do was combine these things and figure out that that's what I really wanted to know more about. And what are your other areas of interest outside of your research topics? You touched on your passion for international relations, but what else are you involved with at Pepperdine specifically? Sure. I'll try to cover just a couple of those things. One is that I'm the chair for our Committee on Women Faculty. It's a terrific cross-disciplinary group of faculty across Seaver College. And so what we do is we work to raise up issues that are important for women faculty at Seaver College. For example, you know, during the pandemic, something that's been really pronounced for all of us is the role of dependent care. Many female faculty have felt this burden extensively, whether it's you know, looking after children that are doing distance learning while still trying to be an awesome professor. Um, Other female faculty have been looking after elderly parents that have either been sick with COVID or have been just really isolated and trying to figure out ways that we can balance those different challenges at home while also holding up a really high bar for academic excellence for ourselves at Pepperdine. A second thing I want to talk about is that I run the Women in International Studies speaker series. And what we do with this is we bring in both academics and practitioners to talk about topics that are related to women in international studies. So just this semester, we brought in Jamia Jowers, who has worked at the White House, the National Security Council, but also at the United Nations working on African affairs and UN reform. So with this program, I'm really passionate about raising up our future female leaders at Pepperdine and showing them just the multitude of places where they can work and make an impact. And last, I'm the faculty advisor for two awesome student-led clubs, Model United Nations and Model World Trade Organization. So these are organizations where students go and travel and work on simulations with real-world diplomatic challenges. And they all had to deal with Zoom diplomacy this year, which really made things tricky. And aside from your research and your your responsibilities as a professor and all of these other responsibilities you mentioned, you're also, you're a wife, you're a mother of two young children, and you're a mentor to several college students during the COVID-19 pandemic. So just checking in, how has this past year been for you? And what have been some of the joys and some of the challenges in all of these roles? Thanks for checking in. I, I really think that that's something powerful that we've all learned to do during the pandemic, and I hope it continues. You know, I already talked a little bit about some of the challenges of distance learning for kids. I have a first grader and a third grader. And first of all, first graders do not love Zoom, or at least mine doesn't. You know, keeping him in a chair for more than half an hour is a challenge in and of itself. So that's been really tricky to balance. Um, Also, they're at a dual language immersion elementary school, and um, I don't speak Spanish myself, so that's been tricky too. 
So things have been hard. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, it's probably been one of the most challenging years of my life. Um, but I, as I say that, I know I've said that to my husband before, that this has been the most challenging year of my life. So I think that there's strength that others have shared that sentiment with me too. Um, and there's also strength in community and knowing that I'm surrounded by a lot of other amazing women that want to hold up an excellent family life and also that and care deeply about their children, but they also want to have an amazing profession. So just keeping that balance has been a feat. And in fact, I've replaced the word balance with replenishment because I know that I'm very rarely going to strike that wonderful balance. But what I've tried to do is periodically make sure that I have replenishment. So I think that something I'm going to take out of this pandemic, that there's a lot that I want to take forward. You know, we hear a lot about post-traumatic stress from COVID, and I think I want to focus on post-traumatic growth today. I think I've adopted some pretty healthy habits during this time, and I know those of you that are listening probably have too. I've started a daily walk at 5.30 in the morning where I love listening to podcasts. I love the news. I already told you that. And I just wasn't getting it because I wasn't doing my daily commute and having that sort of alone time. So I've taken that on as as a daily ritual with the peace and serenity of sunrise. Um, like many others, I've also been cooking a lot and doing long hikes with my family and being underplanned. I'm not good at it. <laughs> But when I've been forced to do it, I realize just how much I love being underplanned. And last, um, I think also just recognizing that we're not necessarily going back, that instead we're going onward and forward in different ways. Wow, that's some really great insight. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I really appreciate it. I think that's a great takeaway. We could end the podcast right here if we needed to. Lessons learned. <laughs> No, I mean, I think it's easy to reflect in Monday morning quarterback, but let's be real. It has not always been easy in the thick of things, and I know that others are going to share that sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if it's all right with you, I'd love to now switch gears and dive into your research that you've been working on. Let's do it. I'm ready to dive into my research this summer, too. Yeah. So you're currently writing about the motivations for states to withdraw from international organizations, which we'll call IOs for the rest of this episode. So to clarify, what function do IOs serve and what are some examples of IOs that our listeners may be familiar with already? So the fundamental reason that IOs exist is to allow countries or states to cooperate on the world stage. So a definition of these international organizations is that they need to have at least three countries or states get together. The second thing they need to do is have some sort of formal agreement on the table, a treaty or another kind of signed agreement to codify what they're agreeing to. And then they need to have a headquarters, some sort of bureaucratic entity. Um, some of the organizations that you're going to know a lot about or that the listeners gonna, are going to know about include the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Trade Organization. But there's also a lot of smaller groups that are included in this set of IOs that I study. There's about 300 of them when you look collectively. So I love to joke that the International Center for Reindeer Husbandry is part of that list. 
as is the International Whaling Commission. So it's really quite a diverse group of organizations. What prompted you and your co-author to take up this research project in the first place? It's a great question. My husband, Brian, does not care deeply about international politics like I do. He's really smart. He's very well-read and a really funny guy. But oftentimes, you know, he sees me sitting on the couch reading The Economist or listening to a podcast. And quite literally, one day, he was watching the news with me. And there was a United States senator who was talking on the floor of the House, arguing that the United States shouldn't be spending money in the U.N., and that we needed to stop funding it. And in fact, his argument that we needed to stop our membership. And Brian turned to me and he said, well, what are all you academics thinking about this? You know, does it matter whether the U.S. pulls out of the U.N.? What could actually happen? And I joked with him that nobody had actually studied that. We've had a lot of focus on why countries join these organizations. You know, I think for a long time, scholars didn't even really see much benefit to them. And so For a long time, there was a lot of focus on whether IOs actually provide a lot of these benefits that have been put on paper. So we've been a little bit defensive and trying to prove that to the world, and thus we haven't paid a lot of attention to what happens on the flip side. And additionally, some real-world examples started popping up that have uh, sort of escalated or accelerated my research. So Brexit, for example, the United Kingdom pulling out of the EU as well as the United States under the Trump administration, pulling out of a couple of different organizations, really pulled my research along. And now, from what I've observed, a lot of trends in IO withdrawal seem to be kind of a direct result of populist movements or hypernationalism. And now this might just be my own experience talking as an American and Brazilian citizen and observing how the past few years have gone and watching Presidents Trump and Presidents Bolsonaro pushing back against international cooperation to promote America first or Brazil first sentiment. Um, So am, am I wrong? Am I right? Do you think that populism tells the whole story or is there more to it? Millie, you're not alone in thinking about the centrality of populism and nationalism in maybe causing this. In fact, One of the pieces of research that is in this vein was written for a special issue of a journal related to populism and nationalism. And so I would say that conventional wisdom, or at least the popular press, have definitely latched onto this connection. My co-author and I, though, we were a little bit more skeptical because we have withdrawal information that goes back to the 1940s. We started collecting data after World War II, and we have about 225 cases of countries pulling out of international organizations. So we know that this has happened over time across different countries and not just during eras of populism and nationalism. So that caused us to be a little bit skeptical of this persistent nationalism withdrawal link. And I think really looking at the data and then testing that helped us to sort of unpack it. So we found out, too, that in studying this, that populism is not just a symptom, but it's also a cause. So what does the formal IO withdrawal process look like? If I was going to, you know, say, that's it, we're done with the United Nations or the WTO, like, walk, walk me through that. It's different for every organization. Some of the common threads are that, you know, when these countries get together and sign those IO treaties that I talked about before, they usually take painstaking detail in writing a withdrawal clause. You know, what happens if you want out of the divorce paperwork, if you will. 
And one of the things that's often included in that article that they'll pull together is a waiting period. So this idea that you as a country would make an announcement but then have to wait, oftentimes up to a year if you want to formally pull out. And in that year, it's it's sort of this cooling off period, you know, a chance to maybe have other people or other countries convince you that you really don't want out within that year. But you still have to show up to meetings and you still have to pay your dues. But even if the countries don't put put together that withdrawal provision, which is actually what happened with the World Health Organization, the Vienna Conventions is pretty broad in establishing the fact that countries can withdraw when they want to, with some sort of notice. So in the case of the WHO and President Trump announcing that the U.S. would withdraw, this is an example where the waiting period worked in the U.S.'s favor, or I mean at least the Biden administration's favor, because that time period didn't fully elapse, and so the U.S. never fully pulled out. Um, I should also note that oftentimes there's some domestic involvement, right? So if there has to be ratification from the Senate to join a treaty in the first place, you'll likely have to have the Senate ratify you pulling out of the agreement. And other times there's unilateral ability for the executive to pull out. So I think just emphasizing that it varies from organization to organization is really important. I also want to emphasize just once again that this can be really easy, right? For certain instances, you can make an announcement or a threat and it can happen the next day. And other times it's a really long, drawn-out process where you might see multiple threats. You know, the U.S. has said a couple of times over the past year or two that, hey, you know, we might pull out of NATO. But it's proven to be a lot more difficult than it might seem in a tweet. And before conducting your research, what did you hypothesize were the primary motivators for IO withdrawal? So our, our research was actually really inductive in nature. Some research questions I come at with a really clear idea of what I think is going on, you know, an argument or a hypothesis, if you will. And then what I do is I set about collecting data or evidence to test that argument. Um, but in this case, since there was very little research written about this, what we did first is a couple of things. So first we leaned on a lot of the really rich theory and literature that's been written on why countries join IOs in the first place. And we segmented that into three different criteria. First, the idea of domestic politics causing you to join the I.O., then geopolitics, and then the importance of organizational design. And we kind of flipped those on their head and said, you know, can we reverse course and can these help explain why countries pull out? The second thing we did is we leaned on related literature. So maybe not in the same immediate family, but extended family of scholarship. So there is some literature on what happens and why countries pull out of treaties, for example, that don't have an organization attached to them. So for each of those different categories, we used a lot of the well-known measures and tried to include a whole bunch of the different ways to measure those different factors that we knew um, were important. And, you know, so much was and is being written in the popular press about the world running away from globalization and neoliberal institutions that it made us be a little skeptical of this nationalism question from the get-go. So I wanted to em I want to emphasize here that, you know, we wanted to make sure that we included a really robust set of measures of this these concepts, right, of populism and nationalism. And I think we ended up having 
13 different ways that we measured that to be absolutely sure that we weren't missing something. It's not that I necessarily wanted to prove that nationalism and populism literature wrong, but I did want to sort of question all of the pearl clutching that was going on with these people saying, oh my gosh, the world's running away from neoliberal institutions. And I think here, looking at the data inductively and recognizing actually that this is a phenomenon that's been around for quite some time, that helped us unpack it a little bit more. Now, walk me through how you designed your study. Sure. The first thing, and it's actually one of my favorite things doing research, is collecting the data. You kind of feel like you're on a treasure hunt. And what I needed to figure out was a data set of all the times when countries have withdrawn from international organizations. So how do you do that when nobody else has started that in the first place? Well, we did it a couple of ways. One way is that we knew that the media often picks up on these withdrawals. And so we set about using a newspaper database called Factiva. Some of you might have used something similar like LexisNexis that combs through all of the different newspapers and you put in key search words, including our 300 different IOs, and then all kinds of different iterations of the word withdrawal. And that helped us sift through newspaper articles to create our database. And the second thing we did to add to that was combing through every single website of the list of organizations. Because you know that many of these organizations list their membership but also that they talk about changes in membership. And we followed up with these organizations over email, and we've spent some time in their archives. I think, you know, the really nice thing about this data set is that it's relatively small, right? It turned out to be just over 200 cases. And so the luxury I had with this database is that I was able to sort of dig in more once I had each case, I was able to understand some of the details that you don't necessarily have the luxury of when you're dealing with a really, really large data set. And the last thing I did was I leveraged existing quantitative variables for all of those different control factors that I talked about before, those independent variables that I thought were important, including populism and nationalism, like I talked about before. And I will say to that end, I work really well with my co-author. Her name is Inken von Borzakowski, and she does a lot of the teched up statistics. I do some good statistics, but she is much fancier than I am. And so we went back and forth a lot. You know, I would come up with an idea and throw that out to her, and she would sort of say to me, I don't know if it's working that way. And she would come up with an answer and push back at me. So the co-author relationship has been really key in designing my study. And... What did all of this really detailed deep dive research find? So we actually disproved this conventional wisdom idea that nationalism and domestic politics are key driving factors for countries withdrawing from international organizations. I think the important thing that we were able to do was not to just look at this segment in time, you know, when we know that there's a lot of pushback to globalization right now. That might be really important for some of these super salient and recent cases, but when you look back over time, geopolitical factors are key. That's interrelationships between countries. So what I mean by that is, you know, when a country starts to really pull away from the other countries that are in that organization, uh, they diverge from, say, the average preferences of other states, then 
it becomes more likely that they will withdraw. And, you know, thinking about it, it totally makes sense. Back to you asking me about what an international organization does is, you know, it's set up to facilitate cooperation. Well, if you don't really agree with those countries that much anymore, then you're far less likely to want to stay in there. The second thing that became really important was this phenomenon of contagion. And this is actually something I worry a lot about when an important country, including either a founding member or a regional power like an economic hegemon pulls away. So if they lead in withdrawing, other states are going to be much more likely to follow so that they're not left with this inflated burden and fewer benefits of being in the organization. And then the last thing that matters is the state-level makeup of the organization. States are far less likely to withdraw from organizations that have, you know, if they have a lot of democracies in them, probably because these organizations tend to be really effective at tying the hands of states to the commitments that they've made. Okay, so to recap, basically there are three main findings, right? The first is if state realizes they actually aren't really jiving with what the what the institution is trying to get at they're probably going to withdraw so if you aren't really a fan of world health maybe you'll want to withdraw from the world health organization in really simple terms obviously it's far more complicated than that no i i think that makes a lot of sense putting it in those terms and then you said so basically if we're as students and professors in the United States, we're thinking about this through an American-centric lens, if the United States withdraws from these organizations, it's actually far more likely that other countries will follow suit because if not, they're left with a lot more responsibility, but not a lot of the perks of collaborating with, with the hegemon. Um, and then lastly, I think that's a really interesting point that densely democratic um, IOs have people... I guess everyone's just tying their hands more. So something that the point about democracy is actually a really interesting point that we hadn't touched on earlier. Yeah, I think it just highlights, right, that not all of these organizations are created equal. Yeah. And that it really matters the company in which you keep. So I know this is an academic paper and you're a professor, but you're also you're an influencer of policy at heart, too. So I wanted to pose this to you. You have all these incredible findings um, and you kind of critique some conventional wisdom here. But I guess what would you recommend to a U.S. policymaker? What would you recommend they do with your findings and your research? You're spot on. I mean, I have my Ph.D. from a public policy school. I also worked for the U.S. government for a couple of years, so I do care really deeply about not just having sort of esoteric research that's going to go sit and get dusty on the shelf. It's interesting that you ask this question right now, because one of the things I'm going to be working on this summer is a commissioned piece from the World Bank. And they're really trying to understand what the future of multilateralism is going to look like. And what I'm going to be doing with that is trying to understand if withdrawal is one of the options that states have. You know, does that help the international community reform and reshape itself going forward? One of the things I'm going to try to do is better understand this by, you know, looking at what happens when countries threaten to withdraw, right? What happens if those IO, to those IOs when key countries sound the alarm that they're walking away? I still have a lot of work to do, but so far it looks like withdrawal is 
often imprudent for bolstering multilateralism in the long run and affecting change, which I know many countries are really trying to fight hard for. Um, It's not easy, but it seems most likely to succeed, you know, this change, if you push it from within. Uh, So while I think this sort of sounds obvious, maybe I've been in the weeds too long, but walking away from problems does not solve them. I guess, you know, what I'm hoping is to better understand what takes place in some of those you know, behind-the-scenes negotiations when countries do threaten to leave so that it doesn't have to get that far. It's really expensive to withdraw. It's really time-consuming. It's really distracting. And it's actually not that great for diplomacy. So I think that's what I would want policymakers to take away. And I guess last question for you. We have talked a lot about the value of multilateralism. So what would you recommend to a hyper-nationalist leader like, like Bolsonaro um, in order to incentivize them to pursue multilateralism? I love this question, but I'm not sure if I'm going to want to be in cahoots with a super-nationalistic leader. But I think you're right to ask this question, right? Because there are a lot of nationalistic leaders out there latching onto this discussion that, hey, international cooperation is not for us. So... I think the way I'm going to answer this, though, is to flip it around and tell you that some of the survey work I've been doing recently on the U.S. public's opinion toward withdrawal and trying to understand whether or not they support withdrawals, you know, this work basically shows that there's a partisan divide. That's probably not that surprising, right? Folks on the right tend to be very supportive of pulling out of these organizations and folks on the left tend to be much more supportive of staying in. But there's a really interesting extra finding that we have that framing our participation and telling the U.S. public why it's important to either be in these organizations or not is really, really important and can move that partisan support. And it turns out that framing, the kind of framing that's really important is to frame things around U.S. national interests. What do I mean by that? It means what's in it for us. So it doesn't seem like the U.S. public necessarily cares about international cooperation for cooperation's sake, right? People don't necessarily have these altruistic ambitions when it comes to international politics. But when they know what it's going to do for them and for their own security and for their own economic prosperity, that can be really important in nudging the needle of the U.S. public. And I imagine in other countries as well. This is probably going to hold up in Brazil, for example. And so to really pay attention to what can it do for you. um, Part of of that makes me sad, I'll be honest, right? That we should care about cooperation for the greater good. But part of me, you know, we know this about humankind and trying to understand what it does for oneself or one's country. This is what makes it a palpable uh, situation for voters. Well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Dr. Fabulous, thank you so much for taking the time out of your full schedule to share this with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Millie. I will now get back to teaching my six-year-old how to say trash in Spanish right now. Amazing. (laughs) Thanks for listening. As always, this episode was edited and produced by Taylor Matthews. This is the end of season two of Global Tides. I hope you enjoyed following along and learning more about all the amazing things that the Pepperdine community is working on. 
I know that I'm so grateful for the opportunity to learn alongside you all as well. Once again, I'd like to thank Pepperdine University for their funding and support of this project. And special thanks to Katie Carr, Amanda Riscala, and Daniel Ituri for all your help. See you next time.